episode 473. HelloFresh begins at 946, and Book Talk begins at 1550. Welcome to Craftlit, the podcast for crafters who love books. My name is Heather Ordover, and I'm podcasting from where the Delaware River meets the Old York Road, New Hope, Pennsylvania. Episode 473 Boo. This episode of Craftlet is brought to you by HelloFresh. Visit HelloFresh.com and use promo code CRAFTLIT30, that's numeral three, numero zero, to save $30 off your first week of deliveries. Hello and happy Halloween 2017. If you are new to the Craftlet podcast, welcome. Here's how things go down here. There is often a little bit of crafty chat. Sometimes it's an update on something that I'm working on. Sometimes it's sharing information from listeners that they send to me. And then we get into the book talk. Usually we're doing a novel on Craftlit and I introduce the next chapters of the book as we're going through it, serialized weekly, just like they did back in the old days. And then I play you the chapter audio. That way you have everything you need all in one place in order to get all the fabulous goodness out of these old stories and books. Every Halloween for the last several years, I have released a special Halloween episode. This year's episode is extra special, special. Since we no longer have John Skulls reading for us this year, I was able to ask and receive permission from BJ Harrison at Classic Tales Podcast to be able to reuse a recording of his for our Halloween special. So first, there has been a little bit of craftiness in my world this last week. Uh, Thing 2 has started watching Riverdale, which is, I think, a show on the CW, but he'd been watching it on Netflix. And then he had me watch it with him, and now I'm hooked. It's been a long time since I've seen a TV show that was written for young people, kind of a young adult-ish TV show, where bad guys weren't made dumber so that not-so-bright main characters could look smarter. In this case, everybody's actually pretty clever. And people who seem to be pretty awful at the beginning turn out to be interestingly conflicted and have, in some cases, really surprising motivations behind why they do the things that they do. All of it leading up to the inevitable don't judge a book by its cover, just like Don't judge something called Riverdale with characters like Archie and Veronica and Betty and Jughead. Don't judge too quickly based only on that. It's actually quite interesting. But the whole reason I bring it up is because Thing 2 has requested that I make him a Jughead hat. There were several patterns out there, all variations on the same theme. Obviously, there aren't a lot of differences in the Jughead hat world. But I did find one knitting pattern that I think is really cleverly constructed, simple, pretty straightforward. And when I purchased the pattern off of her Etsy page, I received a PDF of the pattern, just the words, you know, just a straight shot. Here it is, real simple, big type, easy to follow. 
And along with it, another version in English also with the prettification. It has the pictures and some of the pictures are instructional and very useful, but it also takes up more paper that way. So you can decide which one you want to print out or which one you want to carry with you in your knitting bag. And it took me very little time to memorize the the pattern. And now I'm just cruising along to the end and then I'll be stitching everything up. So I will have pictures for you, I hope, soon on what the Jughead hat looks like on thing two. So before we get to our Scottish author, we need to talk a little bit about Scotland because the Craft Lit Scotland tour is coming up in June 2018. And the information on the tour is about to be released to the public. Once that happens and the big tour package brochure from Holiday Vacations hits the street, uh, that is when everybody who isn't a Craftlet listener can sign up. And those spaces do get filled. And once they're filled, there's not much we can do to add you in later. You can, however, reserve a seat on the tour to Scotland with all the Craftlet people for $200 now. That saves you your seat. And then you have until a final deadline next year to finish paying for the trip. Diane has all the information you could ever want about the trip and holiday vacations and how the whole setup works. And you can get a hold of her at 1 800 826 2266. I've already told you a little bit about the first couple of days of our tour. Now we're on to, I think it's day three and full day three. And that is starting out at Burnham Wood. If you listened to Chop Bard's Macbeth, you may recall that Burnham Wood plays a central part in that play. The witches, the bubble bubble toil and trouble witches, they prophesy that Macbeth will never vanquished be until great Burnham Wood to high Dunsinane Hill shall come against him. And that, I'm not going to give away any spoilers, is a prophecy that seems to not be possible. So why should Macbeth worry? Hello, hubris. But Burnham Wood is real, and there are these enormous trees. Well, there were enormous trees. There is now one last enormous tree left from Shakespeare's day. It is not in great shape. If we don't go see it now, I can't guarantee it will be there for you to see on another trip. It has rotted out from the inside, but the tree limbs are still growing, so it's kind of precarious. And when we talk about it being a great big tree, we're not joking about that. The part that's rotted out on the inside, three human adult people could stand straight up inside the hollowed out portion of this tree. So it's kind of big and really cool and neat to see something that old and still growing. I mean, the middle part of the trunk may have tanked, but the limbs, the branches, they're still growing. So there's still food moving up that trunk, just not right there through the center part. Pretty cool. So the ancient oak in Burnham Wood is where we start the day, and then we go to Dunkeld Village. Now the villages of Dunkeld and Burnham actually are on either side of the River Tay, and they were joined by a bridge in 1809. Prior to that, they were separate, but obviously very close to each other, kind of like New Hope and Lambertville near where I live. Dunkeld Cathedral, which is in the village of Dunkeld, was started in the 12th century 
and it was added onto all the way up through the 16th century, and it is gorgeous. During the 1689 Battle of Dunkeld between the Jacobites and the local garrison, Dunkeld went down in flames. Very sad. However, from the ashes and what was left, the town itself rebuilt into what they call the little houses. And those are all private homes now owned by the trust, except for one shop, which is the L shop. It's a weaver shop, and they have all sorts of Scottish crafts and goodies for all of us to get while we're there. And it's called the L shop because that was a measurement that weavers used. It was about a meter, which is where you get the phrase, give him an inch and he'll take an L. Not apostrophe E-L-L like hell, but L as in a meter. How cool is that? Along with, of course, being steeped in fabulous history and gorgeous countryside. From Dunkeld and Burnham, we go on to a distillery. Yes! The party will kick off at Blair Athol Distillery. That is a distillery in Scotland that makes Blair Athol single malt whiskey. It is such a cool building. There are some really cool pictures of it online, so I will link to those on the Craftlet show notes for episode 473 as well. And I'll see if over the next few months I can get a hold of the podcaster who I met at the podcasting convention a couple of months ago who runs the Whiskey Cast and see if he can share any insights for us on this particular distillery and the spirits that are made there. Speaking of spirits and things that taste good, I had a lot of fun in the kitchen. Not entirely helped by spirits, but spirited in that I had a lot of fun because of HelloFresh. You have probably picked up on the fact that I am a little picky when it comes to who sponsors a Craftlet episode. There are other offers that I've gotten from other companies and businesses and places, and I've I've said no to several because I just didn't think that they necessarily fit in particularly well with what I know about you and your needs and the things that make you happy. And so rather than waste your time by plugging something that I know you can't use or wouldn't be interested in using, I've been waiting for the good ones to come along. And HelloFresh is definitely one of the good ones. Fear not. So if you don't have a pen or pencil nearby or you can't get to craftlit.com slash 473, I will say this again. And there will be links at craftlit.com slash 473 as well. First off, hellofresh.com. Go there and use promo code craftlit30. That's craftlit30. And that promo code will allow you to save $30 off your first week of deliveries. Now, HelloFresh is not the first food delivery service that my family and I have tried in my adult grown-up life. It is certainly the best put together by a long shot. It is also the first that I've tried since my boys have been old enough to have opinions about things other than, you know, hey, chicken nuggets are great. They now actually like good food as well. So it was very interesting to be able to test the HelloFresh recipes on them, and I might add, with great result. And the first one was balsamic fig chicken with sweet potatoes and mixed greens. So I really like eating food. This was really good. The balsamic fig chicken was incredibly delicious. My mom's like a, an average cook, so that means that really anyone can do it. 
The food was really good, and it was actually, it was so good, I ate what I was given, I ate what mom didn't finish, and then I also ate the portion that was being saved for dad, because I didn't realize that's what it was, and all I knew was that it tasted really good. I feel bad, but also I have no regrets. So they've changed a bit since Doofusdolfuego and Blockhead visited you last time, but they did love the food. So let me break it down for you. I sign up at HelloFresh.com with, for example, promo code CRAFTLIT30. And then I receive a delivery box. The delivery box, and you'll see pictures of all of this on the CRAFTLIT.com site. The delivery box shows up with everything I need. Everything except a pan to cook in. It's all in there. It's all divided appropriately. It is all refrigerated with ice packs inside an insulated bag inside the big cardboard box. So having having done Urban Organics in New York City, I wasn't quite sure exactly how the things inside the box were going to be organized. It was so simple. The box had the meat done separately and the produce all broken down by recipe type and labeled clearly. So truly, I could have left the house and gone on one of the trips to Germany and have done nothing else except unpack the boxes and put the produce and the meat away into the refrigerator and freezer and left the recipe card out for my husband. And he would have been able to not just make a spectacular dinner, which he can do just normally too, but following this recipe, he would never have had to call me or text me to say, where's the whatever, whatever, because it's all right there. It's all portioned out. They have two full-time registered dietitians on staff, so the recipe cards are gone over with fine-tooth comb so that all of the, the, you know, the recommended daily allowances of everything, it's all being met. It's all listed on there for you. The recipe cards are really, really clear and simple. And the recipe cards do say that you can make any of these recipes in 30 minutes. I found that for me, it took a little bit longer, which probably had something to do with the fact that I had an audiobook going in the background. No matter what, it was under an hour, well under an hour. But the other thing I really liked about the service was after a day, you know, you know the day when you've just had a day and you are so done. The last thing I want to do is I don't, I don't want to have to figure out anything else. I also, I'm not very good at planning meals for a week. I know some of you are. I know we have listeners who are incredible at doing this kind of thing. Honestly, I've never been so happy to have a recipe card out and waiting for me, to not have to make any decisions, to not have to think about whether I went shopping and got the right stuff in order to be able to make something, rather than, you know, discovering halfway through that, oh, and I don't have any soy sauce in the house anymore. Darn. So everything was there, including things like vegetable stock. So everything you need is included. The recipe cards are all broken down into six really clear and simple steps with photographs to help, just in case. It just couldn't have been more simple. I am so happy to be able to share this with you. And even more importantly, to bring you an offer, go to HelloFresh.com and use promo code CRAFTLIT30, CRAFTLIT30, and that will get you $30 off of your first shipment. Yay! I am so excited to be able to share this with you. 
Uh, if you've been a premium subscriber on Craftlit for a while, you know that BJ is responsible for having read the very funny book, Three Men in a Boat, to say nothing of the dog. And he did a stupendously good job extracting all of the humor out of that text and putting it right into your ears. This time, we get a little spooky spookiness from him. And once again, his voice lends a layer of meaning and depth to an old story that really, really helps to bring it to life. Now, he read the story as an individual story, which makes perfect sense, us having short stories and things on our podcast from time to time. However, the story is actually a chapter in a larger book by the Scottish author George MacDonald. Now, if you are a premium listener currently, you have already heard two George MacDonald stories. He's a very interesting writer, and he's probably the most famous writer you've never heard of because his influences, actually quite a bit like Jerome K. Jerome, who wrote Three Men in a Boat, his influences have absolutely strayed into the 20th and 21st centuries. Lots and lots of people used to read his books and stories, fewer now. However, one of the people who I'm fairly certain read at least this book, Fantasties, is the author of Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norell. And I have been looking everywhere to find out if there's any reference to this. I challenge you, if you have read Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norell, listen to today's episode and let me know, are you seeing the same thing I am seeing? Or are you hearing the same thing I am hearing? You're always welcome to call Craftlet and share your own thoughts and ideas, differences of opinion, or agreements with me at area code 206-350-1642. Or you can go to craftlit.com and use the little SpeakPike tabby on the right-hand side to leave a 90-second message. Or you can go to speakpipe.com slash craftlit and leave a message directly there. Either way, I get your audio and I can play it on our next episode. So why am I so excited about playing you a story from George MacDonald? While I was researching George MacDonald, I stumbled on this page, and I simply have to read this out loud to you as it was written because it cracked me up. And I think it's also a kind of an accurate introduction to George MacDonald. This page is called The Birth of adult fantasy literature. Once upon a time, a guy named George MacDonald sat down and wrote a book named Fantasties, a fairy romance for men and women. When he was done in 1858, we presume he stood up, dropped the mic, or the Victorian equivalent of phonograph, and declared, you're welcome, nerds. Okay, you got me. He actually said something much more eloquent, like, I write not for children, but for the childlike, whether they be of five, fifty, or seventy-five. Here, here, MacDonald told the prejudice against adult fantasy not to let the door hit its butt on the way out. Another luminary of this era was William Morris, whose 1896 book, The Well at the World's End, strove to recreate the language and culture of Middle Age epics. Interestingly, the philosophies of these two authors, MacDonald, a Christian theologist, and Morris, an ardent medievalist, 
match the two most gigantic figures in fantasy literature from the 20th century, who are up next. Can you guess who they are? I'll give you a moment to think. Do, 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 do. <laughs> All right. Now I will turn the page for you and read you the follow-up. Tolkien and Lewis, the big guns. It's hard to overstate the influence of J.R.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis over fantasy. The pair also shared a close friendship as part of the Oxford Inklings Literary Club. Boy, would we have liked to have been a fly at the wall. Boy, would we have liked to have been a fly on the wall at one of those meetings. Like MacDonald, Lewis was interested in incorporating Christian principles and mysticism into his work, and those ideas inspired his Narnia series. His Narnia series. Lewis was also an heir to Lewis Carroll, L. Frank Baum, and J.R. Barry. And Barry of Peter Pan fame. In that his fantasy world existed parallel to our reality, Tolkien was different. Like Morris, who he acknowledged as his biggest influence, whereas C.S. Lewis acknowledged George MacDonald as his. Tolkien was different. Like Morris, his heart was the Germanic epics of the medieval period. But he went much further than any other fantasy writer had before in creating Middle-earth, a self-sustaining universe with its own detailed maps, histories, and languages. And this is one of the most interesting things, I think, about George MacDonald. Here you have a writer in the, the mid-1800s in Scotland who started off as clergy. He got an appointment, he worked as a, a minister, and then he was told that he wasn't harsh enough, and so he got canned. His, his Calvinism wasn't Calvinist enough, I guess. He wasn't enough fire and brimstone for the dudes in charge. So he had this fallback position of, well, I guess I'll write. Luckily, it worked out for him and for us. Because, as I think I said, he is very likely the best, most famous fantasy writer you have never, ever heard of. I've been kind of casually polling friends, and the number of people who know George MacDonald or have read him versus those who haven't is about one in 10 so far, maybe one in 12. He's not doing very well, but I'm hoping that today and the couple of stories that I've put out on the premium feed will help rectify that. And perhaps you'll pick up a little George MacDonald in the future. The two stories that I've released as premium audio episodes are available on the Craftlet shop. And there are links out to that from craftlet.com slash 473. So if you're interested in slightly different stories than the one we're going to hear today, which, like I said before, I think very, very distinctly is channeled in Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, the other two are, are different. One is quite a bit more lighthearted, and one starts with the fairies kind of a Jonathan Strange Norell world, but then moves into the shadows. And one of the things that makes both L. Frank Baum and George MacDonald very interesting is the choices that they made when portraying entities like 
shadows or fairies or witches, they often as not will take the conventional wisdom of the time and turn it on its ear. Today's selection, chapter 13 from Fantasties, is a a little bit more traditional in the way this alternate realm that we can assume is a realm of fairy, at least in part, is portrayed. It's a little bit more traditional that way. It's just very well done. When B.J. Harrison released this on his Classic Tales podcast, and I will link out to that episode for you as well, it's episode 541, called The Magic Mirror by George MacDonald. And I have to give a heads up uh, thank you to several listeners who all wrote in at about the same time saying, oh my gosh, you have to go listen to this over on BJ's channel because it's really good and he's Scottish. So I did. And that's when I contacted BJ, who graciously has allowed us to borrow his audio for you today. Now, when BJ did his audio, he removed introductory text that has more to do with the larger novel itself and less to do, in fact, almost nothing to do with the core story. But because Craftlet listeners are Craftlet listeners, I have recorded the introduction and the close of chapter 13 so that you can hear kind of how it fits into a larger whole and have a little extra something something to listen to. At the end of today's story, I will not pop back on I think the story speaks for itself. Here you go. And now, The Magic Mirror by George MacDonald. Fantasties, Chapter 13 I saw a ship sailing upon the sea, deeply laden as a ship could be, but not so deep as in love I am for I care not whether I sink or swim. Old Ballad But love is such a mystery I cannot find it out, for when I think I'm best resolved, I then am most in doubt. Sir John Suckling One story I will try to reproduce, but alas, it is like trying to reconstruct a forest out of broken branches and withered leaves. In the fairy book, everything was just as it should be, though whether in words or something else I cannot tell. It glowed and flashed the thoughts upon the soul with such a power that the medium disappeared from the consciousness, and it was occupied only with the things themselves. My representation of it must resemble a translation from a rich and powerful language, capable of embodying the thoughts of a splendidly developed people into the meager and half-articulate speech of a savage tribe. Of course, while I read it, I was Cosmo, and his story was mine. Yet, all the time, I seemed to have a kind of double consciousness, and the story a double meaning. Sometimes it seemed only to represent a simple story of ordinary life, perhaps almost of universal life, wherein two souls, loving each other and longing to come nearer, do, after all, but behold each other as in a glass darkly. As through the hard rock go the branching silver veins, as into the solid land run the creeks and gulfs from the unresting sea, as the lights and influences of the upper worlds sink silently through the earth's atmosphere, 
so doth fairy invade the world of men, and sometimes startle the common eye with an association as of cause and effect, when between the two no connecting links can be traced. Cosmo von Verstahl was a student at the University of Prague. Though of a noble family, he was poor and and prided himself upon the independence that poverty gives. For what will not a man pride himself upon when he cannot get rid of it? A favorite with his fellow students, he yet had no companions, and none of them had ever crossed the threshold of his lodging in the top of one of the highest houses in the old town. Indeed, the secret of much of that complacence which recommended him to his fellows was the thought of this unknown retreat, whither in the evening he could betake himself and indulge undisturbed in his own studies and reveries. These studies, besides those subjects necessary to his course at the university, embraced some less commonly known and approved, for in a secret drawer lay the works of Albertus Magnus and Cornelius Agrippa, along with others less read and more abstruse. As yet, however, he had followed these researches only from curiosity, and had turned them to no practical purpose. His lodging consisted of one large low-ceilinged room, singularly bare of furniture. For besides a couple of wooden chairs, a couch, which served for dreaming on, both by day and night, and a great press of black oak, there was very little in the room that could be called furniture. But curious instruments were heaped in the corners, and in one stood a skeleton, half leaning against the wall, half supported by a string about its neck. One of its hands, all of fingers, rested on the heavy pommel of a great sword that stood beside it. Various weapons were scattered about over the floor. The walls were utterly bare of adornment, for the few strange things, such as a large dried bat with wings dispread, the skin of a porcupine, and a stuffed sea mouse, could hardly be reckoned as such. But although his fancy delighted in vagaries like these, he indulged his imagination with far different fare. His mind had never yet been filled with an absorbing passion, but it lay like a still twilight open to any wind, whether the low breath that wafts but odors, or the storm that bows the great trees till they strain and creak. He saw everything as through a rose-colored glass. When he looked from his window on the street below, not a maiden passed, but she moved as in a story, and drew his thoughts after her till she disappeared in the vista. When he walked in the streets, he always felt as if reading a tale, into which he sought to weave every face of interest that went by, and every sweet voice swept his soul as with the wing of a passing angel. He was in fact a poet without words, the more absorbed and endangered, that the springing waters were dammed back into his soul, where, finding no utterance, they grew and swelled and undermined. He used to lie on his hard couch and read a tale or a poem till the book dropped from his hand. But he dreamed on, he knew not whether awake or asleep, until the opposite roof grew upon his sense and turned golden in the sunrise. 
Then he arose too, and the impulses of vigorous youth kept him ever active, either in study or in sport, until again the close of the day left him free, and the world of night, which had lain drowned in the cataract of the day, rose up in his soul with all its stars and dim-seen phantom shapes. But this could hardly last long. Some one form must sooner or later step within the charmed circle, enter the house of life, and compel the bewildered magician to kneel and worship. One afternoon, towards dusk, he was wandering dreamily in one of the principal streets when a fellow student roused him by a slap on the shoulder and asked him to accompany him into a little back alley to look at some old armor which he had taken a fancy to possess. Cosmo was considered an authority in every matter pertaining to arms, ancient or modern. In the use of weapons, none of the students could come near him, and his practical acquaintance with some had principally contributed to establish his authority in reference to all. He accompanied him willingly. They entered a narrow alley, and thence a dirty little court, where a low-arched door admitted them into a heterogeneous assemblage of everything musty and dusty and old that could well be imagined. His verdict on the armor was satisfactory, and his companion at once concluded the purchase. As they were leaving the place, Cosmo's eye was attracted by an old mirror of an elliptical shape, which leaned against the wall, covered with dust. Around it was some curious carving, which he could see but very indistinctly by the glimmering light which the owner of the shop carried in his hand. It was this carving that attracted his attention, at least so it appeared to him. He left the place, however, with his friend, taking no further notice of it. They walked together to the main street, where they parted and took opposite directions. No sooner was Cosmo left alone than the thought of the curious old mirror returned to him. A strong desire to see it more plainly arose within him, and he directed his steps once more towards the shop. The owner opened the door when he knocked, as if he had expected him. He was a little old, withered man, with a hooked nose, and burning eyes constantly in a slow, restless motion, and looking here and there as if after something that eluded them. Pretending to examine several other articles, Cosmo at last approached the mirror, and requested to have it taken down. "'Take it down yourself, master. I cannot reach it,' said the old man. Cosmo took it down carefully, when he saw that the carving was indeed delicate and costly, being both of admirable design and execution, containing with all many devices— which seemed to embody some meaning to which he had no clue. This, naturally, in one of his tastes and temperament, increased the interest he felt in the old mirror, so much, indeed, that he now longed to possess it, in order to study its frame at his leisure. He pretended, however, to want it only for use, and saying he feared the plate could be of little service, as it was rather old, he brushed away a little of the dust from its face, expecting to see a dull reflection within. His surprise was great when he found the reflection brilliant, revealing a glass not only uninjured by age, but wondrously clear and perfect, should the whole correspond to this part, even for one newly from the hands of the maker. 
He asked carelessly what the owner wanted for the thing. The old man replied by mentioning a sum of money far beyond the reach of poor Cosmo, who proceeded to replace the mirror where it had stood before. You think the price too high, said the old man. I do not know that it is too much for you to ask, replied Cosmo, but it is far too much for me to give. The old man held up his light towards Cosmo's face. I like your look, said he. Cosmo could not return the compliment. In fact, now he looked closely at him for the first time, he felt a kind of repugnance to him, mingled with a strange feeling of doubt whether a man or a woman stood before him. What is your name? he continued. Cosmo von Verstahl. Ah, ah, I thought as much. I see your father in you. I knew your father very well, young sir. I dare say in some odd corners of my house you might find some old things with his crest and cipher upon them still. Well, I like you. <laughs> you shall have the mirror at the fourth part of what I asked for it, but upon one condition. What is that? said Cosmo. For although the price was still a great deal for him to give, he could just manage it, and the desire to possess the mirror had increased to an altogether unaccountable degree, since it had seemed beyond his reach. That if you should ever want to get rid of it again, you will let me have the first offer. Certainly, replied Cosmo with a smile, adding, A moderate condition indeed. On your honour, insisted the seller. On my honour, said the buyer and the bargain was concluded. "'I will carry it home for you,' said the old man, as Cosmo took it in his hands. "'No, no, I will carry it myself,' said he, for he had a peculiar dislike to revealing his residence to anyone, and more especially to this person, to whom he felt every moment a greater antipathy. "'Just as you please,' said the old creature, and muttered to himself as he held his light at the door to show him out of the court. Sold for the sixth time. I wonder what will be the upshot of it this time. I should think my lady had enough of it by now. Cosmo carried his prize carefully home. But all the way he had an uncomfortable feeling that he was watched and dogged. Repeatedly he looked about, but saw nothing to justify his suspicions. Indeed, the streets were too crowded and too ill-lighted to expose very readily a careful spy if such there should be at his heels. He reached his lodging in safety, and leaned his purchase against the wall, rather relieved, strong as he was, to be rid of its weight. Then, lighting his pipe, threw himself on the couch, and was soon lapped in the folds of one of his haunting dreams. He returned home earlier than usual the next day, and fixed the mirror to the wall over the hearth, at one end of his long room. He then carefully wiped away the dust from its face, and, clear as the water of a sunny spring, the mirror shone out from beneath the envious covering. But his interest was chiefly occupied with the curious carving of the frame. This he cleaned as well as he could with a brush, and then he proceeded to a minute examination of its various parts, in the hope of discovering some index to the intention of the carver. In this, however, he was unsuccessful and at length, pausing with some weariness and disappointment, 
he gazed vacantly for a few moments into the depth of the reflected room. But ere long he said half aloud, What a strange thing a mirror is, and what a wondrous affinity exists between it and a man's imagination. For this room of mine, as I behold it in the glass, is the same, and yet not the same. It is not the mere representation of the room I live in, but it looks just as if I were reading about it in a story I like. All its commonness has disappeared. The mirror has lifted it out of the region of fact into the realm of art, and the very representing of it to me has clothed with interest that which was otherwise hard and bare. Just as one sees with delight upon the stage the representation of a character from which one would escape in life as from something unendurably wearisome. But is it not rather that art rescues nature from the weary and sated regards of our senses, and the degrading injustice of our anxious everyday life, and, appealing to the imagination, which dwells apart, reveals nature in some degree as she really is, and as she represents herself to the eye of the child, whose everyday life, fearless and unambitious, meets the true import of the wonder-teeming world around him, and rejoices therein without questioning. That skeleton, now, I almost fear it, standing there so still, with eyes only for the unseen, like a watchtower, looking across all the waste of this busy world into the quiet regions of rest beyond. And yet I know every bone and every joint in it as well as I know my own fist. And that old battle-axe looks as if any moment it might be caught up by a mailed hand, and, borne forth by the mighty arm, go crashing through cask and skull and brain, invading the unknown with yet another bewildered ghost. I should like to live in that room, if I could only get into it. Scarcely had the half-molded words floated from him, as he stood gazing into the mirror, when, striking him, as with a flash of amazement that fixed him in his posture, noiseless and unannounced, glided suddenly through the door into the reflected room, with stately motion, yet reluctant and faltering step, the graceful form of a woman, clothed all in white. Her back only was visible as she walked slowly up to the couch in the further end of the room, on which she laid herself wearily, turning towards him a face of unutterable loveliness, in which suffering and dislike and a sense of compulsion strangely mingled with the beauty. He stood without the power of motion for some moments, with his eyes irrevocably fixed upon her, and even after he was conscious of the ability to move, he could not summon up courage to turn and look on her, face to face, in the veritable chamber in which he stood. At length, with a sudden effort, in which the exercise of the will was so pure that it seemed involuntary, he turned his face to the couch. It was vacant. In bewilderment, mingled with terror, he turned again to the mirror. There, on the reflected couch, lay the exquisite lady form. She lay with closed eyes, whence two large tears were just welling from beneath the veiling lids, still as death, 
save for the convulsive motion of her bosom. Cosmo himself could not have described what he felt. His emotions were of a kind that destroyed consciousness. It could never be clearly recalled. He could not help standing yet by the mirror and keeping his eyes fixed on the lady, though he was painfully aware of his rudeness and feared every moment that she would open hers and meet his fixed regard. But he was ere long a little relieved, for after a while her eyelids slowly rose and her eyes remained uncovered, but unemployed for a time. And when at length they began to wander about the room, as if languidly seeking to make some acquaintance with her environment, they were never directed towards him. It seemed nothing but what was in the mirror could affect her vision, and therefore if she saw him at all, it would only be his back, which of necessity was turned towards her in the glass. The two figures in the mirror could not meet face to face, except he turned and looked at her, present in his room, and as she was not there, he concluded that if he were to turn towards the part in his room corresponding to that in which she lay, his reflection would either be invisible to her altogether, or at least it must appear to her to gaze vacantly towards her, and no meeting of the eyes would produce the impression of spiritual proximity. By and by her eyes fell upon the skeleton, and he saw her shudder and close them. She did not open them again, but signs of repugnance continued evident on her countenance. Cosmo would have removed the obnoxious thing at once, but he feared to discompose her yet more by the assertion of his presence which the act would involve. So he stood and watched her. The eyelids yet shrouded the eyes, as a costly case the jewels within. The troubled expression gradually faded from the countenance, leaving only a faint sorrow behind. The features settled into an unchanging expression of rest, and by these signs and the slow regular motion of her breathing, Cosmo knew that she slept. He could now gaze on her without embarrassment. He saw that her figure, dressed in the simplest robe of white, was worthy of her face, and so harmonious that either the delicately molded foot or any finger of the equally delicate hand was an index to the whole. As she lay, her whole form manifested the relaxation of perfect repose. He gazed till he was weary, and at last seated himself near the new-found shrine, and mechanically took up a book, like one who watches by a sickbed. But his eyes gathered no thoughts from the page before him. His intellect had been stunned by the bold contradiction, to its face, of all its experience, and now lay passive, without assertion, or speculation, or even conscious astonishment, while his imagination sent one wild dream of blessedness after another coursing through his soul. How long he sat he knew not, but at length he roused himself, rose, and trembling in every portion of his frame, looked again into the mirror. She was gone. The mirror reflected faithfully what his room presented, and nothing more. It stood there like a golden setting, whence the central jewel has been stolen away, like a night sky, without the glory of its stars. She had carried with her all the strangeness of the reflected room. It had sunk to the level of the one without. 
But when the final pangs of his disappointment had passed, Cosmo began to comfort himself with the hope that she might return, perhaps the next evening, at the same hour. Resolving that if she did, she should not at least be scared by the hateful skeleton, he removed that, and several other articles of questionable appearance, into a recess by the side of the hearth, whence they could not possibly cast any reflection into the mirror, and having made his poor room as tidy as he could, sought the solace of the open sky, and of a night wind that had begun to blow, for he could not rest where he was. When he returned somewhat composed, he could hardly prevail with himself to lie down on his bed, for he could not help feeling as if she had lain upon it, and for him to lie there now would be something like sacrilege. However, weariness prevailed, and laying himself on the couch, dressed as he was, he slept till day. With a beating heart, beating till he could hardly breathe, he stood in dumb hope before the mirror on the following evening. Again the reflected room shone as through a purple vapor in the gathering twilight. Everything seemed waiting like himself for a coming splendor to glorify its poor earthliness with the presence of a heavenly joy. And just as the room vibrated with the strokes of the neighboring church bell announcing the hour of six, in glided the pale beauty, and again laid herself on the couch. Poor Cosmo nearly lost his senses with delight. She was there once more. Her eyes sought the corner where the skeleton had stood, and a faint gleam of satisfaction crossed her face, apparently at seeing it empty. She looked suffering still, but there was less of discomfort expressed in her countenance than there had been the night before. She took more notice of the things about her, and seemed to gaze with some curiosity on the strange apparatus standing here and there in her room. At length, however, drowsiness seemed to overtake her, and again she fell asleep. Resolved not to lose sight of her this time, Cosmo watched the sleeping form. Her slumber was so deep and absorbing that a fascinating repose seemed to pass contagiously from her to him as he gazed upon her and he started as if from a dream when the lady moved, and without opening her eyes, rose, and passed from the room with the gait of a somnambulist. Cosmo was now in a state of extravagant delight. Most men have a secret treasure somewhere. The miser has his golden hoard, the virtuoso his pet ring, the student his rare book, the poet his favorite haunt, the lover his secret drawer. But Cosmo had a mirror, with a lovely lady in it. And now that he knew by the skeleton that she was affected by the things around her, he had a new object in life. He would turn the bare chamber in the mirror into a room such as no lady need disdain to call her own. This he could effect only by furnishing and adorning his. And Cosmo was poor. Yet he possessed accomplishments that could be turned to account, although hitherto he had preferred living on his slender allowance to increasing his means by what his pride considered unworthy of his rank. He was the best swordsman in the university, and now he offered to give lessons in fencing and similar exercises, to such as chose to pay him well for the trouble. His proposal was heard with surprise by the students, but it was eagerly accepted by many, and soon his instructions were not confined to the richer students, 
but were anxiously sought by many of the young nobility of Prague and its neighborhood, so that very soon he had a good deal of money at his command. The first thing he did was to remove his apparatus and oddities into a closet in the room. Then he placed his bed and a few other necessaries on each side of the hearth, and parted them from the rest of the room by two screens of Indian fabric. Then he put an elegant couch for the lady to lie upon, in the corner where his bed had formerly stood, and by degrees, every day adding some article of luxury, converted it at length into a rich boudoir. Every night, about the same time, the lady entered. The first time she saw the new couch, she started with a half-smile. Then her face grew very sad. The tears came to her eyes, and she laid herself upon the couch and pressed her face into the silken cushions, as if to hide from everything. She took notice of each addition and each change as the work proceeded, and a look of acknowledgment, as if she knew that someone was ministering to her and was grateful for it, mingled with the constant look of suffering. At length, after she had lain down as usual one evening, her eyes fell upon some paintings with which Cosmo had just finished adorning the walls. She rose, and, to his great delight, walked across the room and proceeded to examine them carefully, testifying much pleasure in her looks as she did so. But again the sorrowful, tearful expression returned, and again she buried her face in the pillows of her couch. Gradually, however, her countenance had grown more composed. Much of the suffering manifest on her first appearance had vanished, and a kind of quiet, hopeful expression had taken its place which, however, frequently gave way to an anxious, troubled look, mingled with something of sympathetic pity. Meantime, how fared Cosmo? As might be expected in one of his temperament, his interest had blossomed into love, and his love, shall I call it ripened or withered, into passion. But alas, he loved a shadow. He could not come near her, could not speak to her, could not hear a sound from those sweet lips to which his longing eyes would cling like bees to their honey founts. Ever and anon he sang to himself, I shall die for love of the maiden. And ever he looked again and died not, though his heart seemed ready to break with intensity of life and longing. And the more he did for her, the more he loved her. And he hoped that, although she never appeared to see him, yet she was pleased to think that one unknown would give his life to her. He tried to comfort himself over his separation from her by thinking that perhaps some day she would see him and make signs to him, and that would satisfy him. For, thought he, is not this all that a loving soul can do to enter into communion with another? Nay, how many who love never come nearer than to behold each other as in a mirror seem to know and yet never know the inward life, never enter the other soul, and part at last with but the vaguest notion of the universe on the borders of which they have been hovering for years. If I could but speak to her and know that she heard me, I should be satisfied. Once he contemplated painting a picture on the wall which should of necessity convey to the lady a thought of himself, but though he had some skill with the pencil, he found his hand tremble so much when he began the attempt that he was forced to give it up. 
who lives, he dies. Who dies, he is alive. One evening, as he stood gazing on his treasure, he thought he saw a faint expression of self-consciousness on her countenance, as if she surmised that passionate eyes were fixed upon her. This grew, till at last the red blood rose over her neck and cheek and brow. Cosmo's longing to approach her became almost delirious. This night she was dressed in an evening costume, resplendent with diamonds. This could add nothing to her beauty, but it presented it in a new aspect, enabled her loveliness to make a new manifestation of itself in a new embodiment. For essential beauty is infinite, and as the soul of nature needs an endless succession of varied forms to embody her loveliness, countless faces of beauty springing forth, not any two the same, at any one of her heartthrobs, so the individual form needs an infinite change of its environments to enable it to uncover all the phases of its loveliness. Diamonds glittered from amidst her hair, half hidden in its luxuriance, like stars through dark rain clouds, and the bracelets on her white arms flashed all the colors of a rainbow of lightnings as she lifted her snowy hands to cover her burning face. But her beauty shone down all its adornment, if I might have but one of her feet to kiss, thought Cosmo, I should be content. Alas, he deceived himself, for passion is never content. Nor did he know that there are two ways out of her enchanted house. But suddenly, as if the pang had been driven into his heart from without, revealing itself first in pain and afterwards in definite form, the thought darted into his mind, she has a lover somewhere. Remembered words of his bring the color on her face now. I am nowhere to her. She lives in another world all day and all night after she leaves me. Why does she come and make me love her? Till I, a strong man, am too faint to look upon her more. He looked again, and her face was pale as a lily. A sorrowful compassion seemed to rebuke the glitter of the restless jewels, and the slow tears rose in her eyes. She left her room sooner this evening than was her wont. Cosmo remained alone, with a feeling as if his bosom had been suddenly left empty and hollow, and the weight of the whole world was crushing in its walls. The next evening, for the first time since she began to come, she came not. And now Cosmo was in wretched plight. Since the thought of a rival had occurred to him, he could not rest for a moment. More than ever, he longed to see the lady face to face. He persuaded himself that if he but knew the worst, he would be satisfied. For then he could abandon Prague and find that relief in constant motion, which is the hope of all active minds when invaded by distress. Meantime, he waited with unspeakable anxiety for the next night hoping she would return. But she did not appear. And now he fell really ill. Rallied by his fellow students on his wretched looks, he ceased to attend the lectures. His engagements were neglected. He cared for nothing. The sky, with the great sun in it, was to him a heartless, burning desert. The men and women in the streets were mere puppets, without motives in themselves or interest to him. 
he saw them all as on the ever-changing field of a camera obscura. She, she alone and altogether, was his universe, his well of life, his incarnate good. For six evenings she came not. Let his absorbing passion and the slow fever that was consuming his brain be his excuse for the resolution which he had taken and begun to execute before that time had expired. Reasoning with himself that it must be by some enchantment connected with the mirror that the form of the lady was to be seen in it, he determined to attempt to turn to account what he had hitherto studied principally from curiosity. For, said he to himself, if a spell can force her presence in that glass, and she came unwillingly at first, may not a stronger spell, such as I know, especially with the aid of her half-presence in the mirror, if ever she appears again, compel her living form to come to me here? If I do her wrong, let love be my excuse. I want only to know my doom from her own lips. He never doubted, all the time, that she was a real earthly woman, or rather that there was a woman who, somehow or other, threw this reflection of her form into the magic mirror. He opened his secret drawer, took out his books of magic, lighted his lamp, and read and made notes from midnight till three in the morning for three successive nights. Then he replaced his books, and the next night went out in quest of the materials necessary for the conjuration. These were not easy to find, for in love charms and all incantations of this nature, ingredients are employed scarcely fit to be mentioned, and for the thought even of which, in connection with her, he could only excuse himself on the score of his bitter need. At length he succeeded in procuring all he required, and on the seventh evening from that on which she had last appeared, he found himself prepared for the exercise of unlawful and tyrannical power. He cleared the center of the room, stooped, and drew a circle of red on the floor, around the spot where he stood, wrote in the four quarters mystical signs, and numbers, which were all powers of seven or nine, examined the whole ring carefully, to see that no smallest break had occurred in the circumference, and then rose from his bending posture. As he rose, the church clock struck seven, and, just as she had appeared the first time, reluctant, slow, and stately, glided in the lady. Cosmo trembled, and when, turning, she revealed a countenance worn and wan, as with sickness or inward trouble, he grew faint, and felt as if he dared not proceed. But as he gazed on the face and form, which now possessed his whole soul, to the exclusion of all other joys and griefs, the longing to speak to her, to know that she heard him, to hear from her one word in return, became so unendurable that he suddenly and hastily resumed his preparations. Stepping carefully from the circle, he put a small brazier into its center. He then set fire to its contents of charcoal, and while it burned up, opened his window and seated himself, waiting beside it. It was a sultry evening. The air was full of thunder. A sense of luxurious depression filled his brain. The sky seemed to have grown heavy, and to compress the air beneath it. A kind of purplish tinge pervaded the atmosphere, and through the open window 
came the scents of the distant fields, which all the vapors of the city could not quench. Soon the charcoal glowed. Cosmo sprinkled upon it the incense and other substances which he had compounded, and stepping within the circle, turned his face from the brazier towards the mirror. Then, fixing his eyes upon the face of the lady, he began with a trembling voice to repeat a powerful incantation. He had not gone far before the lady grew pale, and then, like a returning wave, the blood washed all its banks with its crimson tide, and she hid her face in her hands. Then he passed to a conjuration stronger yet. The lady rose and walked uneasily to and fro in her room, another spell, and she seemed seeking with her eyes for some object on which they wished to rest. At length it seemed as if she suddenly espied him, for her eyes fixed themselves full and wide upon his, and she drew gradually, and somewhat unwillingly, close to her side of the mirror, just as if his eyes had fascinated her. Cosmo had never seen her so near before. Now, at least, eyes met eyes. But he could not quite understand the expression of hers. They were full of tender entreaty, but there was something more that he could not interpret. Though his heart seemed to labor in his throat, he would allow no delight or agitation to turn him from his task. Looking still in her face, he passed on to the mightiest charm he knew. Suddenly the lady turned and walked out of the door of her reflected chamber. A moment after, she entered his room with veritable presence, and forgetting all his precautions, he sprang from the charmed circle and knelt before her. There she stood, the living lady of his passionate visions, alone beside him, in a thundery twilight and the glow of a magic fire. Why, said the lady with a trembling voice, didst thou bring a poor maiden through the rainy streets alone? Because I am dying for love of thee, but I only brought thee from the mirror there. Oh, the mirror. And she looked upon it and shuddered. Alas, I am but a slave while that mirror exists. But do not think it was the power of thy spells that drew me. It was thy longing desire to see me that beat at the door of my heart till I was forced to yield. Canst thou love me, then? said Cosmo, in a voice calm as death, but almost inarticulate with emotion. I do not know, she replied sadly. That I cannot tell, so long as I am bewildered with enchantments. It were indeed a joy too great to lay my head on thy bosom and weep to death. For I think thou lovest me, though I do not know, but... Cosmo rose from his knees. I love thee as... Nay, I know not what. For since I have loved thee, there is nothing else. He seized her hand. She withdrew it. No, better not. I am in thy power and therefore I may not. She burst into tears, and kneeling before him in her turn, said, Cosmo, if thou lovest me, set me free, even from thyself, break the mirror. And shall I see thyself instead? That I cannot tell. I will not deceive thee. We may never meet again. A fierce struggle 
arose in Cosmo's bosom. Now she was in his power. She did not dislike him, at least, and he could see her when he would. To break the mirror would be to destroy his very life, to banish out of his universe the only glory it possessed. The whole world would be but a prison if he annihilated the one window that looked into the paradise of love. Not yet pure in love, he hesitated. With a wail of sorrow, the lady rose to her feet. Oh, he loves me not. He loves me not even as I love him. And alas, I care more for his love than even for the freedom I ask. I will not wait to be willing, cried Cosmo, and sprang to the corner where the great sword stood. Meantime, it had grown very dark. Only the embers cast a red glow through the room. He seized the sword by the steel scabbard and stood before the mirror. But as he heaved a great blow at it with the heavy pommel, the blade slipped halfway out of the scabbard, and the pommel struck the wall above the mirror. At that moment, a terrible clap of thunder seemed to burst in the very room beside them, and ere Cosmo could repeat the blow, he fell senseless on the hearth. When he came to himself, he found that the lady and the mirror had both disappeared. He was seized with a brain fever, which kept him to his couch for weeks. When he recovered his reason, he began to think what could have become of the mirror. For the lady, he hoped she had found her way back as she came. But as the mirror involved her fate with its own, he was more immediately anxious about that. He could not think she had carried it away. It was much too heavy, even if it had not been too firmly fixed in the wall for her to remove it. Then again he remembered the thunder, which made him believe that it was not the lightning, but some other blow that had struck him down. He concluded that, either by supernatural agency, he having exposed himself to the vengeance of the demons in leaving the circle of safety, or in some other mode, the mirror had probably found its way back to its former owner, and, horrible to think of, might have been by this time once more disposed of, delivering up the lady into the power of another man, who, if he used his power no worse than he himself had done, might yet give Cosmo abundant cause to curse the selfish indecision which prevented him from shattering the mirror at once. Indeed, to think that she whom he loved, and who had prayed to him for freedom, should be still at the mercy in some degree of the possessor of the mirror, and was at least exposed to his constant observation, was in itself enough to madden a cherry lover. Anxiety to be well retarded his recovery, but at length he was able to creep abroad. He first made his way to the old brokers, pretending to be in search of something else. A laughing sneer on the creature's face convinced him that he knew all about it, but he could not see it amongst his furniture, or get any information out of him as to what had become of it. He expressed the utmost surprise at hearing it had been stolen, a surprise which Cosmos saw at once to be counterfeited, while at the same time he fancied that the old wretch was not at all anxious to have it mistaken for genuine. Full of distress, which he concealed as well as he could, he made many searches, but with no avail. Of course he could ask no questions, but he kept his ears awake for any remotest hint that might set him in a direction of search. He never went out without a short, heavy hammer of steel about him, 
that he might shatter the mirror the moment he was made happy by the sight of his lost treasure, if ever that blessed moment should arrive. Whether he should see the lady again was now a thought altogether secondary and postponed to the achievement of her freedom. He wandered here and there, like an anxious ghost, pale and haggard, gnawed ever at the heart by the thought of what she might be suffering, all from his fault. One night he mingled with a crowd that filled the rooms of one of the most distinguished mansions in the city, for he accepted every invitation that he might lose no chance, however poor, of obtaining some information that might expedite his discovery. Here he wandered about, listening to every stray word that he could catch, in the hope of a revelation. As he approached some ladies who were talking quietly in a corner, one said to another, Have you heard of the strange illness of the Princess von Hohenweiss? Yes, she has been ill for more than a year now. It is very sad for so fine a creature to have such a terrible malady. She was better for some weeks lately, but within the last few days the same attacks have returned, apparently accompanied with more suffering than ever. It is altogether an inexplicable story. Is there a story connected with her illness? I have only heard imperfect reports of it, but it is said that she gave offence some eighteen months ago to an old woman who had held an office of trust in the family, and who, after some incoherent threats, disappeared. This peculiar affection followed soon after, but the strangest part of the story is its association with the loss of an antique mirror which stood in her dressing-room, and of which she constantly made use. Here the speaker's voice sank to a whisper, and Cosmo, although his very soul sat listening in his ears, could hear no more. He trembled too much to dare to address the ladies, even if it had been advisable to expose himself to their curiosity. The name of the princess was well known to him, but he had never seen her, except indeed it was she, which now he hardly doubted, who had knelt before him on that dreadful night. Fearful of attracting attention, for from the weak state of his health he could not recover an appearance of calmness, he made his way to the open air, and reached his lodgings, glad in this that he at least knew where she lived, although he never dreamed of approaching her openly, even if he should be happy enough to free her from her hateful bondage. He hoped, too, that as he had unexpectedly learned so much, the other and far more important part might be revealed to him ere long. Have you seen Steinwald lately? No, I have not seen him for some time. He is almost a match for me at the rapier, and I suppose he thinks he needs no more lessons. I wonder what has become of him. I want to see him very much. Let me see. The last time I saw him, he was coming out of that old broker's den, to which, if you remember, you accompanied me once, to look at some armor. That is fully three weeks ago. The hint was enough for Cosmo. Von Steinwald was a man of influence in the court, well known for his reckless habits and fierce passions. The very possibility that the mirror should be in his possession was hell itself to Cosmo. But violent or hasty measures of any sort were most unlikely to succeed. All that he wanted was an opportunity of breaking the fatal glass, and to obtain this he must bide his time. He revolved many plans in his mind, but without being able to fix upon any. At length one evening, as he was passing the house of von Steinwald, he saw the windows more than usually brilliant. He watched for a while, and seeing that company began to arrive, hastened home, 
and dressed as richly as he could, in the hope of mingling with the guests unquestioned, in effecting which there could be no difficulty for a man of his carriage. In a lofty, silent chamber, in another part of the city, lay a form, more like marble than a living woman. The loveliness of death seemed frozen upon her face, for her lips were rigid and her eyelids closed. Her long white hands were crossed over her breast, and no breathing disturbed their repose. Beside the dead, men speak in whispers, as if the deepest rest of all could be broken by the sound of a living voice. Just so, though the soul was evidently beyond the reach of all intimations from the senses, the two ladies who sat beside her spoke in the gentlest tones of subdued sorrow. She has lain so for an hour. This cannot last long, I fear. How much thinner she has grown within the last few weeks. If she would only speak and explain what she suffers, it would be better for her. I think she has visions in her trances, but nothing can induce her to refer to them when she is awake. Does she ever speak in these trances? I have never heard her, but they say she walks sometimes, and once put the whole household in a terrible fright by disappearing for a whole hour, and returning drenched with rain, and almost dead with exhaustion and fright. But even then she would give no account of what had happened. A scarce audible murmur from the yet motionless lips of the lady here startled her attendants. After several ineffectual attempts at articulation, the word Cosmo burst from her. Then she lay still as before, but only for a moment. With a wild cry, she sprang from the couch erect on the floor, flung her arms above her head with clasped and straining hands, and, her wide eyes flashing with light, called aloud with a voice exultant as that of a spirit bursting from a sepulchre, I am free! I am free! I thank thee! Then she flung herself on the couch and sobbed, then rose and paced wildly up and down the room with gestures of mingled delight and anxiety. Then turning to her motionless attendants, Quick, Lisa, my cloak and hood! Then lower, I must go to him. Make haste, Lisa, you may come with me if you will. In another moment they were in the street, hurrying along towards one of the bridges over the Moldau. The moon was near the zenith, and the streets were almost empty. The princess soon outstripped her attendant, and was halfway over the bridge before the other reached it. Are you free, lady? The mirror is broken. Are you free? The words were spoken close beside her as she hurried on. She turned, and there, leaning on the parapet in a recess of the bridge, stood Cosmo, in a splendid dress, but with a white and quivering face. Cosmo, I am free, and thy servant for ever. I was coming to you now, and I to you, for death made me bold. But I could get no further. Have I atoned at all? Do I love you a little? Truly? Ah, oh, I know now that you love me, my Cosmo. But what did you say about death? He did not reply. His hand was pressed against his side. She looked more closely. The blood was welling from between the fingers. She flung her arms around him with a faint, bitter wail. When Lisa came, came up, she found, she found her, her mistress, mistress kneeling above a wan, dead, dead face. face. 
which smiled on in the spectral moonbeams. And now I will say no more about these wondrous volumes, though I could tell many a tale out of them, and could perhaps vaguely represent some entrancing thoughts of a deeper kind, which I found within them. From many a sultry noon till twilight did I sit in that grand hall, buried and risen again in these old books. And I trust I have carried away in my soul some of the exhalations of their undying leaves. In after hours of deserved or needful sorrow, portions of what I read there have often come to me again with an unexpected comforting, which was not fruitless, even though the comfort might seem, in itself, groundless and vain. I hope you enjoyed our story today. Have a great and very safe, happy Halloween. And don't forget to visit our sponsor for this episode, HelloFresh at HelloFresh.com, using promo code CRAFTLIT30, CRAFTLIT30, to get $30 off on your shipment. Thanks so much for listening. Take care. Have a great one. Talk to you soon. Bye. Craftlet listeners who support the show by being a premium audio member via craftlit.com slash premium or via patreon.com slash craftlit. Your support for the show is what's kept us going since 2006. If you feel like getting free audio pretty much every week, please consider supporting the show by heading over to patreon.com slash craftlit and pledging what you feel the show is worth to you. If you can't support the show that way, consider leaving a review at iTunes or at our facebook.com slash craftlit page or follow at Craftlet on Twitter and share the show with your followers too. And remember, if your hands are too busy to pick up a book, at least you can turn one on.